Healing battered soils with cover crops. And I, I chose this topic because uh, probably all of us can either maybe, maybe have a, a poor quality field or, or those of us who help others may know of uh, situations where you just have a poor soil and how do you address that and specifically with cover crops. And just as I was thinking about this topic, I pulled together a bunch of uh, slides here of some situations that I have been involved with on this uh, of trying to take soils basically using cover crops to to kind of bring them around and bring them back into production and bring them better so I outlined a few overall steps here that I want to talk about at first and then I want to go through uh, several examples uh, real-world examples that I have been involved with and tell you different elements of the approach to to that and um, so uh, that's a little bit of the outline for today's topic so um, some of this stuff is pretty uh, obvious but uh, when, when we look at a field or, or maybe even a farm maybe you pick up a new farm sometimes and you want to be able to enhance its soil quality enhance the production somehow uh, or you know you're a consultant and, and you're working with the farmer uh, the first thing we want to do is to give a, a, a thorough evaluation. And I listed a few things here, not necessarily in any particular order, but there's obvious uh, looking for compaction and it's going to be an obvious one. Taking a shovel and, and looking at the soil, looking at the soil aggregation, to me that's, that's a real important one. Uh, of course, uh, compaction sometimes can be related to soil aggregation, but just how does the soil crumble? How does it break apart? Probably, if it's a if it's a poor quality field, it's not going to be good. Uh, but trying to determine where that's at is important. If you have time to do a water infiltration test, that can give you a clue. That may take a little more time and effort than you're willing to do. I would say that the using a shovel and digging in the soil, looking at the soil is going to be your most important tool and one of the easiest to look at it if you're just evaluating a, a certain field. Also, I put down here a smell, uh, to smell the soil. You may laugh at that. You may think that's kind of crazy, but uh, it, it's just something that I routinely do without thinking. Even if I'm at a field day somewhere, I'll be digging in the soil. I want to smell it. And it's not hard to learn what a good smelling soil smells like because good soil tends to smell good it's there's actually studies have been done that a healthy soil is actually can alter your mood now we're not going to talk about that today but uh and, and i mean in a positive way by the way uh that being said i i was in one situation where i literally took a, a deep breath uh smell of, of a of a of a soil and it just was all, it was repulsive. I mean, it just did, I don't even know how to describe the smell. It just was almost like an ammonia type smell that just made me want to, you know, grab a breath of fresh air right away. So it's, it's, it's something that you kind of, um, it's a learned technique. It's kind of like evaluating wine or something like that sometimes where you have to uh, kind of learn what the technique is and so forth. But uh, smelling the soil to me, gives me some clues uh, about what I'm going to be working with and so forth. So uh, that's just some of the first things. The, the next thing is to take a soil test. I'm going to want to see what nutrients happen to be there, uh, what, where we're at, what is the limiting nutrients, What is there anything really, really obvious. I also listed here a soil health test. Put a question mark beside that because if you're if you if you have a poor quality soil, you you pretty much know that it's not going to show up good. Now it could help tease out some uh, parameters that might be important, uh, but I just put it in there for for the sake of that. But then after we kind of give it an evaluation and an analysis, what is our strategic planning? And this is what I think is going to dictate the next steps. And if it's uh, an area like of your farm or a farm you plan to manage for a while, what is the one-year plan, what's the five-year plan, and maybe what's the 10-year plan? At least be thinking about it in that context. 
Now, I just picked up some land here in the neighborhood last year that is uh, average soil at best. And I know I'm going to, I was told I can have that for several years. So I'm spending some time and effort to do everything I just told you here. And, and, but, but the con, the concept I want to promote here is it, it does make a difference if you're only going to have that feel, like if it's a rented field for a couple years versus uh, a long, a longer period of time. So that's going to help dictate what you're going to invest in this field, of course. And it is kind of obvious, but, I would say maybe stretch that out to thinking from a five to 10 year plan of what you might want to do. So then we're going to add any uh, limiting nutrients that may be there. We're going to talk about different options of that coming up here soon, but that's what, that's kind of the obvious next step. Um, if it's, uh, you know, what is the pH and do we need to apply some lime to help that? Uh, what do we need to jumpstart it? Or maybe I should ask, can you afford to jumpstart this soil and put a, a lot of uh, necessary uh, stuff on it, be it compost, be it nutrients, whatever. Uh, and, and all this is going to have to enter into maybe uh, how much you have to invest in helping that field up front, how bad it is, of course, and then maybe how long that you're going to be able to be able to farm it and manage it. And then, of course, grow the correct cover crop species or mix. It's probably going to be a mix. So, and that's really what we're going to be talking about today. So let's talk about some examples. And uh, I want to start out with probably the most glaring example and one of the best pictures I have of a very poor quality soil on year one. This is in uh, central France, and it is in a field that had been abandoned about 30 years ago because it, it is a generally, the area is generally poor quality soil. It's a sandy type soil. So um, the uh, farmer had the opportunity to farm this land, and uh, to my knowledge, I don't think he's paying hardly anything for it. Uh, but he had to take out some shrubbery and some trees. Matter of fact, you see there just off to the, the right center of the picture is a little tree trying to grow again. Um, but uh, anyway, so this is year one after the shrubbery is cleared. Now, if you look in the foreground there in the bottom of the picture, you can see that hardly anything is growing. But when you look in the background, the center of the picture, you see that nice deep green buckwheat is what you're mostly seeing there. And then you see some other shades of buckwheat. I need to explain this picture a little bit, why it is that way, but it proves a point here of, uh, of something I wanted, wanted to say about uh, jump-starting a field. So um, the only fertility that is on here is compost. And uh, since this farmer had the availability of compost, he correctly thought he's going to really put a heavy coating of compost on there. Well, he had his hired man hook up a, a, a spreader that had spinners on the back to spin out his compost. And it was actually a spreader that had was designed for a 1,000 RPM uh, uh, PTO speed, but the the hired guy only used the 540. He put the wrong, he, whatever he had, he put the wrong, uh, he hooked the wrong PTO speed up. And he wasn't adept enough, I guess, to see that it wasn't spinning out far enough. So you had these centers that was like triple or quadruple the amount of compost versus out in the edge. So that is why you see the different coloration there. So this is a little problem. It was an uneven spread, but still it proves a point. So we can see here that this field was very, very low. Now, I do know what they, um, he told me, as I, I just remember this, that the phosphorus like measured, I think it was seven, seven pounds per acre. So, of course, very, very, very low. Um, but I want to make a point here because sometimes I hear from some people that they'll say, you just plant a great mix of cover crops and you can really bring a soil around quickly. And that may be true in a soil that's pretty good. But when you have an extreme example, and by the way, this is the most extreme example I'm going to talk about. When you have an extreme example, you are going to have to jumpstart it somehow. 
And uh, this this guy had the opportunity for with compost. That's just awesome. But there you can see year one, if you have the availability to put nutrients on and all the microbial stuff that comes in with compost, that is really the ideal way to go. And you can very quickly bring a, a very poor field into agriculture production. So uh, that's the story behind this picture. I think it was fascinating for me to see it. And, and um, it would have been interesting to see what commercial fertilizer would have done. Uh, and for some people, that's their only option. I'm sure it would have, would have really helped. Uh, but if you can get uh, you know, any amendments to bring in more microbes and so forth, that's really good. Uh, but even commercial fertilizer can help jumpstart biomass production and, and, and plant growth that's going to immediately enhance whatever the microbial community happens to be in the soil at that time because there's always some around there. So uh, this is just an extreme example of a very, very battered field and uh, jumpstarting it and getting it ready to go. So uh, just for the first the first slide here, my first point is if you have something like compost, if you have that available, that's really a great opportunity to, to use that and to get it on the ground, to get it jump started very quickly. And then to plant a cover crop mix appropriate for, your, for that, whatever that planting date is and what your goals are. Now, you may ask, uh, well, was buckwheat here the, the best cover crop? And, and um, I'm not sure that it was, actually. I would have probably mixed it up a little bit more. There was a few minor seeds uh, or other species in this, but uh, it was something that uh, he had actually grown the seed for, so that's what he used. I would have expanded that uh, much more. So I, I'm not taking the time here to list because there's so many different scenarios. When you have a battered field, sometimes it's the summertime you get it, sometimes it's the spring, sometimes it's the fall. All that would dic dictate different types of cover crops. And then what is what are you planning to plant the following year? So I'm not going to take this this specific example completely through because there's so many different scenarios that you could do. I just wanted to show you how important it is for an extreme situation to get some help. Um, and uh, I, I will mention about um, the pH and lime and so forth because I did allude to that. Uh, I would want to know what is what that is. I have heard scenarios on poor quality soils that the pH can go up without adding lime if you get the biology working and and so forth because you're you're knocking calcium loose to be used and so forth. But I think if there's a you know a, a very low pH, I'd probably be looking at getting some sort of lime on there to get it jump started. Uh, so that's that's more or less uh, what what my opinion is on that. So uh, moving on here, let's jump from France. Let's go down to uh, be, be a little bit, uh, I guess, southeast uh, to the country of Hungary. I was there last uh, November. I have never, ever, ever seen such a dramatic difference in a field, such a sharp contrast uh, in a given field. And this was a cover crop of mustard. I feel it was a very poor choice for a cover crop. Um, I will say in, in Europe, mustard is kind of like the, the, I guess you'd say the cheap way to go because the seed is cheap. It, it's better than nothing maybe, but uh, not a good choice for a cover crop. A situation like this here uh, would, would uh, and I'm just going to forward here to the next slide. You can still see it in the background a little bit there, but um I asked the farmer, is there uh, any any opportunity that he could have to put manure or compost on? And he said no. So he didn't have that option. Um, I would actually wonder if this wouldn't be a good opportunity to actually do some zone-type planting of cover crop species. It wasn't hard to see the soil difference, and I'm sure if he farmed this land any amount of time, you can almost actually physically see the lines in the soil where you want to uh, – you know, hit the, the poorer quality soil there with maybe a different cover crop uh, mix than you would where it's growing better. I would also take soil tests in those two to see if there's anything glaring that I need to address from a nutrient standpoint. Uh, but if you want to keep it simple and keep it a little bit more easy, this is an obvious example where you want a pretty broad spectrum uh, cover crop species mix 
to cover the variations in a field like this. So this isn't that uncommon to run into some variations, although here was an extreme example. Um, one of the, uh, the suggestions that I gave here was you want multiple legumes. Obviously, there was a nitrogen shortage there. Uh, and if you look, if you look kind of close, maybe you can't see it, but it, it was a sandy type soil. So uh, very, very low organic matter. Uh, and, and he didn't even know what it was, which kind of tells me something uh, right there. But you, you, you want to just throw the kitchen sink at a field like this. A multi-species mix, get your grasses, brassicas, your legumes, and, um, and I would really be interested to in see what happens. But there would be some options in something like this. If you're, if you're looking at a tract of land where you actually maybe can try to build up the organic matter more in some areas that's obviously deficient, that may be something you might want to consider doing, but if nothing else, this is a prime candidate here for a very diverse mixed species of, of cover crops. So um, also the next one here is, is uh, still in Hungary and uh, there's an awful lot of tillage uh, yet in that country, although that's starting to change. But I wanted to, I guess under the, under my title today, battered soils, I mean, there's a lot of different things we could put underneath it, but I'm going to include here soil that is addicted to tillage. In other words, it's just been tilled to death over the years. Um, and if we want to transition this over, now we want to get some specific cover crops. Um, use soil aggregate building cover crops. And uh, I think there's nothing better than Phasalia. Uh, I've seen this enough myself. I've seen it in year one uh, uh, where it was used in a soil that had been addicted to tillage. And it's almost magical how it can take the soil and bring it back to the aggregate stability. Um, so uh, there's a couple others I've listed there. Oats is really notorious for this. I'm, I'm going to add radish there. You may be surprised, but the reason a lot of people say that the soil was more mellow and more crumbly after radish is not because of the tuber. It doesn't have anything to do with the tuber. Most people never see when they, I'll just say, yank a radish tuber out of the ground. They just strip all the fine root hairs that come out the side of that tuber. They strip them off. They don't even know they're there. Now, this fall later on, if you don't believe me, Go out in the field where radishes are and just look around the base of a radish and take a little pocket knife or screwdriver and pick around it in the soil. And you will see, I'll just say millions uh, of uh, fine root hairs coming off that tuber. That is what makes the soil more mellow. That's what helps with that aggregation. So this isn't something the radish does that's obvious to us because we're all focused on that tuber. But it's the fine, fine roots. And I was first made aware of this when I grew radishes in clear uh, six-inch tubes. And the, the, uh, the roots, the root hairs came out, grew out against the glass. And I just was amazed at how many there were. And that's, that's what helps with the, uh, the aggregation of the soil in, in that. Um, I, I threw in chickling vetch here. And one of the reasons I put that in there is when I was in Romania here this spring, I was it was outstanding to me how well the chickling vetch uh, was able to do the same thing to take a field that had been tilled. Again, it was in a it was a cover crop plot in a tilled field. So I, I am talking apples to apples here as far as the ability of cover crops to take a a soil that's addicted to tillage uh, to, to, to bring it into more aggregate stability and a healthier soil. So chickling vetch is another one there. If this is the, this is the goal you're trying to do, uh, this is one you want to keep in mind. Now, there's certainly other ones that could be added to this list. But what I'm saying is if your goal is to take a field that is just addicted to tillage, these are some of the top cover crop species that I'm aware of uh, to, to be able to do this. Uh, I might just uh, unmute everybody now because uh, there could be some questions. I know a few more have joined. 
Um, is there any comments or questions up to this point about anything I've said that you want to have clarified or, or comment on? Hi, Steve. It's Brent Jones. Go ahead, Brent. How early do you think you would need to plant Basilia for it to do any good if you were planting it in the late summer or fall, say in the Midwest? I have planted it after wheat, and it seems to do okay, although it is a more of a cool season uh, plant. It, it grows really well. You can plant it you can plant it when you plant spring oats or peas in the spring. The seeds are very tough on that end of it, and it doesn't winter kill until you get a few nights in the teens. So you want to compare its winter killing uh, potential, which helps answer your question here, how long it'll grow. About the same as most spring oats varieties will winter kill. So okay. I have planted it after wheat, which in my area is the second week of July, and it's done well. I will say on Phasalia, the germination of the seed, in spite of its toughness, is historically low. In other words, if yes. you ever buy a uh, Phasalia, if you have anything over 80%, you got pretty good seed. Uh, it's, right. it's, it's, I, I, that's just the way it is. Uh, I've seen, I've actually seen sold seed, Phasalia seed sold that had a 60% germ in the label. That's probably below most standards, but, uh, you got to know that the seed is for, it just is the nature of it. Phasalia tends to germ low and it can be somewhat erratic in, in its, in its growth in a field. In other words, what I mean by that, when I planted it by itself uh, in my testing and so forth, you would have areas of the field where it'd be 100% and areas of the field would be 0%. And it never made sense why that was. There wasn't any mm -hmm. specific thing I could see. So that's why I always recommend Phasalia is planted with another cover crop to fill in the spots where it doesn't grow. You sound like you're agreeing with me, but I wouldn't mind hearing a little bit more on that. Yeah, I, I mean, my question was let's say you were planting that after corn in a in mm. iowa here Ooh. if you planted it september 15th are you gonna really get any benefits out of it or is that just not a good choice for that that would be highly of? that'd be highly uh on the uh, i'll just say, maybe i should say that would be the last date i would consider it uh, gotcha. that doesn't mean you shouldn't try it uh, because i know you're trying a lot of stuff uh but yeah. that's you're getting late you're getting it. Right. I would say, would you would you plant spring oats then? No. <laughs> okay, that might be your answer. <laughs> uh, because it's just not going to grow that that much. Um, yeah. Uh, so so there again, it's a little, it's a, it's 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 hard to get that in a corn soybean rotation. Um, yeah. You almost have to have a small grain a component that you can get in there earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, other yeah. questions? Are there questions or comments anybody might have? Any questions, comments? We'll move on. Uh, don't be afraid to speak up. Okay, I'm going to uh, move on. And uh, next I would like to uh, take us to a, a different country, uh, actually the border of a different country. This is in Bulgaria looking over into Turkey. The mountain in the background is Turkey, and this is right on the border, actually, the border crossing. You can see the two countries' flags there. This this field literally bordered Turkey. Um, a pretty rough field. Uh, you can see there's even still some shrubbery in there. I, I, I'd like to know sometimes, why don't you just bulldoze that out? But it is what it is. Um, pretty rough-looking field. Uh, you can see there's some rocks in there, but they were trying to farm it. And uh, one of the options that they had there in this field was wheat in the rotation. And uh, right now, it's a little hard to tell, but there was, a, there, was, there was a pea that was growing in there. Honestly, it looked pretty terrible. Um, so I don't know if it was ever going to be worth harvesting. But my suggestion for this field was when we grow wheat, let's get a multi-species cover crop in there uh, after the wheat harvest is off and, and see what we can do to really help uh, you know, jumpstart this crop jumpstart this field from a biological standpoint 
They did have the availability of um, a fertilizer, but no compost, no manure, not a chance. That ain't going to happen here. Uh, so uh, I would, I would. It is my personal opinion that this could be a case where it may pay to put some fertilizer on a cover crop. And I want to talk about that for a little bit because uh, you're going to have some people that will probably disagree with that. But it would be my perspective that in a poor quality field, this whole concept, you need to jump start it. Uh, and it kind of goes back to that very first picture I showed you of a very, very bad field. It needs some help. It needs some help uh, to get it going. And, and since there's no compost and manure available here, let's put some nitrogen on here. Uh, and, and um, it, you know, what, what other components does it need? Does it need some phosphorus? Does it need some potassium? Because uh, I, don't, I don't know the history of this field. All I know that it's really poor right now. So with a multi-species cover crop added uh, with, with some fertilizer to help it, everything is going to jump forward. And I would predict that within a year or two, you're not going to need much fertilizer anymore after that. But in order to jumpstart it, you're going you're gonna to need some. So uh, here again is a classic case of a, of a good multi-species cover crop uh, would, would be uh, definitely uh, here. And, and I will say in the context of multi-species, it would be something that would have some grasses and some broadleaves and some brassicas in. Cover all the bases. Even if you can go, uh, obviously after wheat, you're going to do with, um, with a warm season. Uh, because that's what's going to grow the best over the summer and maybe some cool seasons in there after frost comes so they can continue working for you over the winter. So uh, that's just an example there where in, in this case here. Now let's let's go to uh, another part of the world. This is actually South Texas and uh, higher clay soil got dry. You can see that there. The soil's cracking and that's going to happen uh, in some areas of the country. Um, you just, uh, just, it just does, uh, because of the nature of their weather and their, their, uh, their climate and the soil type particularly. Now, this was a field that, that I was looking at that had, uh, radishes and annual ryegrass and crimson clover planted. Now, obviously, uh, the radishes did well. I never in my life have seen radishes that I could pull out of the ground that look this nice. Uh, these radishes were just pulled out of the ground without a shovel. Uh, now you can see a shovel in the background there, uh, but I will just say that it just, I, I never see anything like that. Um, now, so, so the radishes did well. One of the things about this field I want to cover here is it was a high pH. Uh, the pH in this field was 8.2. So sometimes that's a limiting factor, and it's not easy to bring down pH. So knowing which cover crops can thrive or else do better or, or do better in this situation is very important. I'll just say that in this field, the radishes did, I probably should have said great. Uh, they grew well. There was certainly no inhibition uh, there. And uh, I was told that that was on an inch and a half of water. Uh, so they did good. They were able to get down, root down, do good. But if you look closely, a little hard to see in this slide, but the annual ryegrass did not do very good, and the crimson clover all but died. And that was pretty much because I think the crimson clover, a factor, uh, it just doesn't have quite as deep of a rooting system because of the dry weather. It just died. But the high pH didn't like it. The annual ryegrass, in this case, didn't like it, did not really do much. Uh, we were hoping that the annual ryegrass would help you know build the soil and so forth with this high clay content but it just wasn't a it just didn't really work there um, now even though you see there's still a lot of cracks in the ground even though these radishes were pulled out of that area all around there this was year one of a heavy tilled situation so um, and some of this ground was sugarcane fields which there's certainly not a lot of attention historically been paid to sugarcane growing so high pH is, is one of the things that's a big challenge, but radishes do pretty good on that. Now, uh, I'm going uh, to ask if anybody else knows uh, what other cover crops could work in a high pH situation because 
I rarely run into this myself, so I don't consider myself an expert at all. So I'm just uh, going to ask who who would who would else would know what a high pH uh, good cover crop would be to grow at a high pH soil. Steve, it's Brent again. Yep. Um, fixation balanza clover does well in a wide range of pH, and okay. uh, so it's been known to do well in a high pH. Okay. With that lower rainfall, though, I don't know. Yeah. How well it would do, but yep. from a pH perspective, okay. it would do well. Good to know. Anybody else have some suggestions? Uh, I'm looking for some help here myself. Anyone have anyone work in high pH areas? Uh, I see uh, Marcia is on from South Dakota. Do you work? Do you have high pH soils that you work with? Is there any information you have to help us out? Anybody else? Okay, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I'm sorry, I had to step away, oh, and all I did was hear my name. I'm, oh, well, I didn't hear what okay. the question was. The question is, do you have any experience with high pH soils, and which cover crops can grow in a high pH soil? Um, we we do. Our our, our pHs are, are pretty high here. Mm -hmm. um, we've had good luck with the radishes. We've had okay. good luck with the annual ryegrass. I see. Um, you know, the crimson clover is less popular, mm, but okay. it's yeah. still been used quite a bit. Okay. I mean, so I mean. Yeah. What is what is your what is your pH? Average. Uh, we are probably about um, I would say seven two, seven three okay. in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, that's not quite as high as this situation here was eight point two. Uh, so that's uh, yeah. dramatically different, but that's very helpful. It's good to know. I'm glad you uh, mentioned the radishes seem to have no problem with high pH or low pH for that matter. Right. They seem to tolerate a lot. Um, right. They're very, very popular here. Yeah. Good. Anybody else have any suggestions or knowledge, experience on high pH soils with cover crops? Okay. Well, let's just um, wind down here. The last picture I want to show you uh, was was a soil that I saw in Australia and I, this picture here represents the hardest and tightest soil that I've ever 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 seen in my life uh, or experience. Um, uh, it was very difficult even to get this dug down here and most of the last three or four inches was dug out with a screwdriver and then and then cleaned out with a shovel. Uh, it was that, that that hard. Now there was something interesting about this soil that I found to be uh, it was new for me when I saw it. There was a huge amount of potassium in the subsoil. And what they had saw with the radishes here was that the, that the radishes were bringing up potassium to the soil surface. And, and they were create, obviously creating pores in the soil surface. So, again, this soil wasn't that great. Uh, don't be fooled with the reddish color that you saw in the previous picture. Uh, that, that doesn't mean it was, you know, uh, very like a tremendously high clay content because it actually it, it actually wasn't it was a, a decent soil consistency but wow it was dry there and man was it ever hard and compacted um, and and so uh, I I would just um, it was just amazing to me that in this context here they were trying to extract potassium that happened to be down lower that they, they were saying their cash crops could not reach. So, um, so anyway, well, hey, that wraps it up for, uh, for my part of the presentation. Are there any other questions relating to or, or uh, ideas? I would love to hear if anybody has worked with a, a severe situation that you might want to share, share with us. I don't know if uh, any of you have any experience or not. Um, I know, Dave, you're from Illinois. There's no bad soil in Illinois, is there? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> okay. Uh, everybody just dreams about the, the flat black that we have here, right? Yeah. Uh, I was actually down on uh, oh, some of the, the farm that Mike Plummer had done a little bit of work on uh, before he passed. Uh, actually, yeah. quite a bit of work on with, mm -hmm. um, you know, some hairy vetch right. and some annual rye. Yep. And oh my gosh, I mean, that soil crumbles in your hand. It's, mm -hmm. it's beautiful to see the 
transition that the soil has made in the last, you know, 18 years of cover crops with, uh, and no-till compared to all the neighbors in the area. Yeah, yeah. Um, that soil is really tight, um, a lot of silt loam, and just, you know, it doesn't drain very well, and it's really, really sticky soil. So, sure. you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, it, that's, that's it, and, and I'll just say, David, to your credit, and I would encourage the rest of you that are listening, when, when you hear of situations like this, especially if you're just maybe newer, to actually go and see. It's one thing to hear someone's presentation, but to actually go and see for yourself the difference, especially like Dave said here, when you can compare it to the neighbors, I mean, it's like, wow, there is something to this. Um, and, and I could have shown you lots of comparisons here to the fields close by some of these and what the changes have been made. Um, so, um, yeah, it's just good. Uh, that's just a good thing that you're doing there. Um, others who may have experienced working with soils that um, are less than ideal and, and using cover crops. Maybe I'll ask you, Bob, up there in western uh, New York and you're in the wine country there. I'm, I'm assuming you probably run into some soils that, that aren't ideal. Uh, how do you approach it with using cover crops? Oh, I don't. We're, that's why we're trying all different things. Uh -huh. And uh, we've been no-till since the 70s. Oh, okay. Good. So you really haven't been worked too much at all. You know, maybe a rutted year you go in and yeah. lightly disc it or something. Mm -hmm. But uh, mm -hmm. um, our, our pH is usually running the low. Okay. Uh, you cut out there, Bob. I didn't hear the, what your pH is at. Well, maybe Around we five. Okay, five. Wow, that's pretty low. But is that what you want for grapes, or where where do you want it to be for well, grapes? They come out with a new recommendation, and now we're trying to get up in the low sixes. I see. Okay. And it seems like the cover crop. Once you put the lime on in the spring, the cover crop that fall grows really well. Good. Well, that's that's interesting to note. Any other questions uh, while you're waiting? Next week, I'm going to talk about big picture, the case for 100 million acres of cover crops in the U.S. by 2027. Um, and, and that's a, a pretty high goal. Anyone on here right now venture to guess, or do you know approximately how many million acres are being used in cover crops in the United States uh, in 2018? Does anyone know or want to venture a guess? Anybody? It's it's supposed to be around 20 million. Um, so just to give you an idea. Now, part of the reason for my reason I'm doing is I just came back from a three-day conference addressing this very topic. How do we get to 100 million acres in 2027? This was started uh, last year. That's why the 2027 date's there. How do we get there in, in 10 years? But I think I'm going to share some really interesting things uh, next week that you'll find fascinating to see why this may be uh, plausible and why it may happen. Um, so, yeah, just uh, any more questions here about any other cover crop question at all? I see Dave, you're on. Yeah, you know, I'm uh, actually getting ready this afternoon to go and meet with a farmer and uh, uh, kind of look at what he's got going on with his soils and everything. He actually drove down three hours down to southern Illinois uh, mm -hmm. two days ago to look at one of my farmer's fields down there and look at the cover crops and everything right. and, and the infiltration rates. I mean, we had had yep. two inches of rain. We were walking across this field and not tracking any mud. Yep. Uh, and this guy that, I mean, he came down from flat black country and he's wanting to uh, do something. And he called me up last night and talked for two hours wow. about how this this talk of cover crops and everything has breathed new life into his operation where he was ready to yeah. quit farming. Uh-huh. And that's, you know, I, I can't wait to hear next week's topic and yeah. everything. Cause that's just, <laughs> yeah. it's inspirational to me. I mean, it's, it breathes life into me. Yep. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, Dave, that's not the first person I've heard that said that cover crops have uh, made them want to continue farming or I've heard a variant of that. It makes farming fun again. Uh, and I, that's, Absolutely. Really, that's really cool. The fact that he drove three hours, 
that just tells you everything you need to know there. Uh, if you're going to drive three hours to look at another farm, you're, you're serious. And I would have to add probably will be successful uh, because that's the kind of thing that, that you need to see. And, and I, and I know you know, in your, in, in your consultant advisory role, Dave, that's good that you can, you, the more you can do that, the better. That's awesome. That's yep. awesome. Thank you. Good. Um, any other perspectives? Any other questions at all that anybody would have about cover crops? Any question at all? Now's your chance. Hey, Steve. It's yes, Wayne. Yes, Wayne. Um, dealing with this Montana soil out here, it's very much a heavy clay, um, no organic matter in it, basically from having been burned off over the years and stuff oh. like that. I put some, I know it's pretty far north, but I put some sun hemp, some sort of sedan grass and radish out. Okay. And most of the sun hemp and certain sedan grass barely germed. Like some of it came up, but some of it did. But the radish did fine. Okay. So I think that adds credence to your thing on the high pH. Our soils are high pH seven okay. four, somewhere okay. in that neck of the woods. So uh -huh. I think there's definitely something to that. Certain cover crops are going to have to be used in mm -hmm. the higher pH soils. I've yeah. confirmed that. So I'm wondering too, though. When did you plant that sun hemp and sorghum sedan? How long ago? Uh, I planted it about three weeks ago. Okay. Um, soil temperature was about 65 degrees. Okay, it should have been good. It, so. Yeah. But I, know, I just know so, that the sun hemp pretty much goes dormant under 50 degrees. Do you have many 50 degree or lower nights? Uh, we did have a couple, yeah. yeah we did. Yeah. So maybe that's maybe that slowed yeah, it down. Yeah, I, I, you know, I... I guess that'll be interesting to see if it comes through or not, but uh, you're playing early mm -hmm. enough that it should have enough time to do something. But uh, yeah, yeah, we'll see what yeah. happens. So well, I know it's too far north probably for it. Oh, you gotta try. You gotta try. Yeah. You gotta try. Okay. Anybody else have any other questions today? Joy, do you have any questions? I see you're on here. You have any questions for us today? Anything you're contemplating or thinking about? Marcia, anything from you? Anything else from well, Bob? Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Marcia. Anything? Well, I, I guess I have a question. Have you done any studies on cereal rye um, aerial seeding rates uh -huh. and how how many pounds yeah. is adequate? Is this for corn or soybeans? It, for corn, following corn going yeah. into soybeans. Oh, good, yeah. Well, first of all, cereal rye a lot of times is not preferred for one reason because it, it's it's heavy and it takes up high pounds per acre for for an airplane. They just can't get the acres on. Uh, so I'll just put that out there. That so if if you're like, well, it doesn't matter. We want to try it. Um, I would say well, a what we what we've done is we've dropped our rate down okay. to forty pounds. Okay, is what we want to try, and right. and so the question, you know, mm -hmm. so that we can get it on the airplane yeah. and get it yeah. out there. Yeah, and and so the question is, you know, when you take into consideration, you know, maybe a third of the seed will hit the ground mm -hmm. and germinate. Maybe mm -hmm. is is that enough, you know, to promote soil health? Yeah. Um, there again, you're you're asking the weather to cooperate in order to gain success. Uh, my another thing is there is a relationship to how much residue is on the soil surface. If you're in a long-term no-till situation, depending on the rotation, um, you know there may be quite a bit of residue there. And if a seed filters down through the corn canopy and lands on top of an old corn stalk residue chances of that germinating are very small, if at all. So, but if you're going into ground that is either higher biologically active and it's, and it's more bare, uh, you know, you have more percentage of the seeds actually touching the soil. And then when it rains, they'll just, they'll germinate because rye is the easiest thing there is to germinate. So there's several factors going there. Obviously mother nature is going to have to cooperate. And that we all know that. Um, I think your 40-pound rate, is a, it is a compromise rate. I think if you're aerially seeding, you'd probably want to be just north of a bushel. But uh, then there's, there's restraints. It is amazing. Um, you asked, I think you asked something about, you know, is, is there a biological advantage? Is it worth it? Uh, you don't need very much seeds per or pounds per acre to create that 
to, to sustain biological life in the soil because something like a rye, the roots will go out like a foot or more around the plant, maybe even further. So having a couple seeds uh, or just having one seed per square foot that survives is definitely going to do some good. Um, I'll, I'll just say that. Uh, now, if you're in a situation where you need more biomass for whatever reason, for erosion control, which probably not your case, uh, then you would want a higher seeding rate. So you're just going to have to try it, but you got to understand that aerial seeding, number one, is less consistent. It just always is. Uh, and number two, you just can't probably get the seeding rate. You can't probably justify the seeding rate that you really should be broadcasting on. So I don't right. know. And, and we yeah. We've kind of given them a cutoff here for September 15th. If you're going kind of after that date, yeah. then we're going to go back to our more traditional seeding rate. But okay. we're trying yeah. to hit the yeah. moisture. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. 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 So it's just, it's, I guess I probably didn't tell you anything new, but you just need to understand what those risks are and what the opportunities are and, um, and, and just, you know, go from there. Um, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I know they're constantly working in other opportunities. There, there could be uh, interseeding or earlier in your area. Maybe something worth trying. I know it's been tried. I don't know if you've heard anything about it or not. But the northern areas that seems to be working better, where you'd put it in like we're kind of almost probably past the window of opportunity. But knee-high corn, then you have a lot more options of cover crop species. Have you done any interseeding in your area? We we have we and and. Um, we actually have a couple crop insurance mm -hmm. um, agents who farm who oh. have been trying it too. So we're trying to, you know, get some data for the crop insurance side of things too. That's good. And so, yeah. yeah, so that that is fairly popular here. You know, the problem tends to be getting over enough acres fast. Enough, I know, you know, I know, because I would, I would predict that interseeding is going to be more consistent for your area than aerial seeding. I would predict that all things being somewhat equal, um, but there there could be a case built for interseeding or excuse me aerial seeding, especially if you don't have a lot of residue uh, that that the seeds will hit the ground. One thing about cereal rye is heavy, and you get a higher percentage of seeds that actually get to the ground than something like a smaller seed like or float or a fluffier seed like annual ryegrass. A lot of that gets hung up in the stalks. Okay, so, great question. And the area. Yeah, thank you. That helps. Do you have another comment? Don't no, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say that the area that is probably going to try this the most mm -hmm. has more tillage, and so we're, uh -huh. we are going to have some more bare ground exposed. So, okay. I, so that might, although we don't like to promote more tillage, that I mean that might, yeah, help. No, help your, in this your, situation. your chances of success are going to be higher there, but. I'll also say, and this is, you know, I'm sure we're on the same page. Once you do this more and you get more biological activity, the, it breaks down the residue quicker and it'll be available. I've heard it said more than once. Once once you get a couple years into this, the success of uh, aerial seeding and broadcast seeding increases because of that factor. So, okay. good. Okay. All right. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Dave, did you have a question? Well, a couple things, and yep. one thing about aerial seeding with like annual ryegrass, uh, I was talking to uh, a guy, uh, agronomist with Forge First the other day, um, and he said that they have a coated annual ryegrass that makes uh -huh. it heavier, yep. um, which would help get through yes. that canopy as well. Yes. So, yep. but speaking of uh, seeding options and everything, I've been looking around and trying to debate about uh, doing some custom seeding with either a Phillips harrow with a uh, Valmar box on it yep. to get across acres after harvest rather yep. quickly. Yep. Um, or, you know, even looking at, you know, a, a haggy type system yep. um, mm -hmm. and going in crop in August and trying mm -hmm. to start seeding at yeah. that time. Mm -hmm. There's quite a big difference in pricing there, you know. Yes. Um, but I've heard kind of some mixed emotions about the Phillips harrow mm -hmm. um inconsistency so yeah i didn't know if you had yeah. any light that you could shine well, on that yeah i know that i know farmers have done that um it's it's and i i know the reasons why 
uh, if, if you're in 250 bushel corn residue, even a Phillips hire is not going to get everything touching the soil. It just can't. There's just too much residue there. Uh, there's, there's just nothing better than a drill. Uh, but I understand the constraints of a drill and time and expense um, compared to something that you suggested. So I, I think farmers have to kind of choose uh, what they're going to do in that regard. Um, and it does depend, you know, on your maybe the amount of residue you're dealing with. It's going to be a factor. Uh, as far as the Hagies and stuff like that, I think that's that's the the uh, I'll call it the late season interseeding or you know the when you're going through the high clearance equipment. I think we're always going to have some of that, but I don't think it's going to be like that's going to be the trend where everyone will be doing it. Just again, there's a time constraint. You run down some corn usually, you just can hardly help it. Um, so uh, yeah, just I, I think it's worth trying, Dave. I guess is what I'm maybe I'm trying to get get to here, but it may not be where you're where you're going to end up. Uh, I don't know. I I just know that yeah, the serious guys end up buying a planter or something and and uh, you know so forth. I, I know that um, um, uh, Mark Anson who farms twenty thousand acres in southeastern or southwestern uh, Indiana. That's what he did for a while, but then. He had some trouble going through high residue with that thing, you know, kind of gets stick, uh, full of corn stalks. And, and uh, I don't know, there was some, I guess there was some clogging issues or something. But, um, but th I know that's a, that's the way he got over a lot of acres for a while. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's an option. Well, I've got an, uh, a friend of mine's equipment dealer too, and he's got a, you know, a vertical tillage tool that has yeah. a gandy box on it and, yeah. and even an air drill sitting there that hasn't yeah. moved for a while. He made a pretty good offer on that for a lease that uh, is pretty yeah. attractive as well. So. Well, I have heard in your in your area, I'll just say the Midwest, where, you know, farmers have gone away from drilling beans now, and that's that's been a while now, and then you can get some pretty good used drills out there for decent price to plant covers. Right. So I've heard of that, if you, if you know what you're doing, and there again, you need to find an operator, and and if, if you have the equipment there, um, you know to do that after harvest. Uh, and and I, I have to mention using you you can get a 24 row planter now rigged up to uh, they got the plates you can actually plant mixes, and you can just even just splitting the middle sometimes of the rows is if you're if all you're trying to do is to keep biology in your soil and you don't. Uh, you know, every 30 inches of cover crop row is not that bad of an idea, and you're just a couple bucks an acre for the seed, and you're probably getting some value out of it. So there's there's some there's some other uh, other options out there to try to get it in the ground. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Great. Thank you. Okay. Anybody else? Well, thanks for your uh, your attention. Your good questions here at the end today. I really appreciated that. Um, Hope you guys have a great weekend, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you.